Salofani, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up... He had actually surrendered himself to authorities in New Zealand and pleaded guilty. How a Fijian drug trafficker got away under the former government's noses. Also, New Zealand's ACT Party are dead set on abolishing the Ministry for Pacific Peoples. And later... To me, win or lose, though, it's just it's nice to come out and support my team no matter what. Kiwis dominate Tor Samoa in the Pacific Championships tournament. The operator of a Pacific-wide network of pharmacy companies, IAS Mohammed Musa Ubmaji, was sentenced to four years prison in New Zealand in August for illegally importing millions of dollars worth of pseudoephedrine, a precursor chemical of methamphetamine. But a joint investigation by the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, the Fiji Times, the New Zealand Herald and Radio New Zealand, has found that behind the conviction of Umaji was a far murkier story. The Fijian national had long been a target of police in his home country, but had for years escaped justice. That was thanks to what Fijian and international law enforcement say was an unwillingness by the previous authoritarian government of Frank Bainimarama to seriously tackle meth and cocaine trafficking. Fiji's new government, which was elected last December, is now investigating donations that Umaji and his family made to the previous ruling party, as well as potential connections to top law enforcement officials. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with the lead Pacific editor for the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, Aubrey Balford, and began by asking how they got wind of the story. Uh, yes, yeah, so this story started, you know, as a lot of stories do in the Pacific, that there were a lot of rumours uh, around about uh, Ayaz Musa Umarji and um, his alleged involvement in drug trafficking. And so we were looking into him, and then we realised early this year that he had actually surrendered himself to authorities in New Zealand and pleaded guilty uh, to importing pseudoephedrine, which is a um, precursor chemical for making meth uh, into New Zealand uh, using different branches of his hyperchem companies, which are pharmacies spread throughout the Pacific. So as we started looking into this, we, we wanted to look behind it, you know, into who is uh, this person, you know, what are his connections in Fiji and, and why did it take so long for there to be a successful case against him. And and he's he's been up to this point a pillar of the community. I mean, he's been quite a, a prominent businessman. He was the vice president of the Fiji Football Association. Uh, the hyperchem pharmacies are quite widespread, not just in Fiji, but also uh, there are branches in Solomon Islands. Uh, there's newly established uh, branch in Vanuatu. Uh, previously, there were also companies registered in Samoa. Um, so yes, I mean, he was reasonably prominent in the community. And, you know, what we found looking into this is that he was suspected of involvement in in the drug trade as far back as as 2017. He was on the Fiji police's radar. Uh, He was charged by New Zealand police in 2019. But despite that, and despite it being, you know, fairly open secret, um, he uh, still maintained these positions in the Fiji Football Federation in business. And also he and his uh, family and business partners uh, donated to the former ruling party, to Fiji First Party. And in your investigations, talking about how long he's been able to operate until being convicted now, what were your findings in terms of how he managed to, I guess, stay in those positions so long? I mean, there really was a, a, a feeling in Fiji for, for many years that he was a difficult target to reach. 
Uh, he was seen as being um, well-connected in the country. Uh, local police investigation just didn't manage to collect uh, the evidence that would have been needed uh, to convict him. So actually, the way that he ended up going down was that New Zealand police looked into the case uh, and actually looked into an already existing case of, of someone who was arrested in Auckland with a large amount of um, cold and flu pills that had pseudoephedrine in them. And when they looked into that case and, and you know, the details of how that was moved into the country, they found that it was Moose's hyperchem network that was uh, used to facilitate this. Uh, and so really that was, in the end, how the case was built. Uh, but it was very hard, even after that point, to, to still get Musa. You know, it took about two years for uh, extradition to be granted from Fiji. And by the time it was granted, it turned out that um, as Musa had already left uh, Fiji and, and gone to India. Uh, so then, you know, it was a long process again to get him back. He ended up actually turning himself in uh, and was sentenced to four years in prison um, just in August, yeah, but it was it was quite a long and drawn out process. Have you had a response from the the former um, Fiji government administration, um, uh, our former Prime Minister Bainimarama, Ayesad Kayum, the Attorney General? We reached out to all of them for comment, and we received no response from any of them. Unfortunately, um, we did send them, you know, detailed written questions, but yes, up until this point, there's been no response. All of this, again, bringing, bringing to light, um, we've heard talks about the drug highway, so to speak, of the tran- transition of drugs across the Pacific. This this sort of the first insight into actually some of the rumours that we've been hearing about um, this trade being embedded and getting being able to flourish because of connections in each of the islands. Yes, so the Pacific is really in a pretty uh, important drug route for our region. You know, Australia and New Zealand have some of the highest prices for cocaine and meth, the highest retail prices. So anyone who's producing this in North and South America, uh, really, I mean, if they're able to get across the Pacific to these markets, the profits are immense. Uh, And obviously, the Pacific Islands are right in the middle of it. Fiji, in particular, is a really important transit point because Fiji really is a hub of the Pacific. The Nandi Airport is is a major airport. Uh, There are seaports there, the mail comes through Fiji. So, you know, it's been known for quite some time that it is an important transit point. And it's a place that, you know, international criminal networks are operating. What's really interesting about the case of Ayaz Musa is that he is a Fijian with a Pacific-wide pharmacy good network that is also has been involved in the supply of uh, pseudoephedrine, you know, into this, this market. Uh, it really just highlights how the important the Pacific drug trade is, and also just how much it's been perhaps overlooked uh, for quite some time uh, and really allowed to thrive. I mean, this is a really a growing industry. Uh, it's immensely profitable. And, you know, when you're talking about the Pacific, where countries are often, you know, just not that big, uh, the amount of money in play can really affect things. Um, and, and you obviously, as with um, all of your stories, uh, Pacific collaboration with uh, different orgs in the region and in New Zealand and our, our team at RNZ Pacific also able to contribute on this project? Yes, um, we got great contribution here from the RNZ Pacific team. Kelvin and Lydia um, are just great supporters and you know, the contribution has been invaluable. We also worked with the Fiji Times on this one uh, and we worked with the New Zealand Herald. Uh, Jared Savage there, who's a fantastic reporter on organised crime here in New Zealand. We couldn't have done it without any of our partners.
The number of cyclones in the South Pacific is expected to increase this year because of El Niño. The National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research says elevated cyclone activity is expected for Vanuatu, Fiji and the northern Cook Islands. More severe cyclones with sustained winds surpassing 119 kilometres per hour are also predicted. Niwa meteorologist Ben Nol speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. What can we expect to see this cyclone season in the Pacific? Yeah, so cyclone season in the South Pacific starts in November and it runs through April. So it's coming up quickly, coming up soon. Uh, and this year we have El Nino in the Pacific Ocean, so very warm seas near the equator. And that's going to play a key role in the cyclone season uh, that the region is going to experience this year. Now, during El Nino events past, we have seen several seasons where we've had above normal amounts of activity. Now, the long-term normal number of cyclones per season is nine, nine cyclones. This year, we are expecting anywhere between nine and 14 cyclones. So that is normal to above normal for the season as a whole. El Nino, it does tend to enhance the risk for cyclone activity kind of near and east of the international dateline. So uh, countries like Fiji, the Cook Islands, and many in between, such as Samoa, American Samoa, and eastward toward French Polynesia, tend to have an increased risk for seeing or experiencing impacts relating to cyclones. Okay, so 9 to 14 for the region. Those countries that you mentioned before that were more at risk than they were previously, how many cyclones could they see? So this year, the uh, groups that we have an elevated risk, Vanuatu, Fiji, and the northern Cook Islands. Now, for the likes of Fiji, we're potentially three to four cyclones moving near the islands, crossing near the islands during the cyclone season. For Vanuatu, somewhere between two and three cyclones, potentially. Tonga, maybe as many as three to four. Wallace and Petuna, potentially three to four. So it does look like kind of in that area around Fiji, and especially just to the east of Fiji, uh, does seem to be a bit of a hot spot, potentially this year for cyclone activity. So certainly, you know, those that are active in the marine space, or those that are, you know, tourists or are going to be traveling around, being mindful of the risk uh, both on land with risks around wind and rain or at sea when it comes to high seas, rough seas and swell relating to the cyclones. When we talk about these higher numbers, you know, the fours for those countries that you mentioned before and also 14 for the region, how unusual is that? How unusual is it to get 14 cyclones in the South Pacific? Yeah, so when we're talking about kind of double digits number of cyclones, that is fairly unusual. I mean, we look back at um, years in the past that have similarities with the present year to help guide our outlook. And to do that, we've identified several past years that had uh, El Nino conditions in the Pacific Ocean. And looking back at some of those years, we had in one of the analog years was the 1982-83 cyclone season. That was also an El Nino. That year, there were 16 cyclones. The most recent El Nino season, it was 2009-10, and that had 11 cyclones during that season. So we tend to see an increase in the number of cyclones during El Nino years because the Pacific Ocean is warmer, and that acts basically as a focal point for rising air, which you need rising air to cause these cyclones 
So the combination of the warmth, which then lends itself to the rising air, basically gets that cyclone heat engine going, and it can get it going fairly frequently during these El Nino episodes, again, because of those warm seas. And what does that mean for the strength of the cyclones? Yeah, so uh, El Nino events passed. Um, We have seen quite a few severe tropical cyclones. And when we say severe tropical cyclones, we're talking about category three or higher, which have uh, wind speeds of above 119 kilometers per hour. This year, we may have as many as four to eight severe tropical cyclones. So out of that nine to 14 total, four to eight of those could reach severe strength. As we look back again at those years in the past that have similarities with this year, the season 1982-83, that year there were 10 severe tropical cyclones. So it's not just the number or the count of cyclones this year that we need to be aware of, but potentially some of these storms being on the stronger end of the spectrum and having impacts across the island groups. I mean, what can happen during El Nino is there may be some island groups that actually experience drought or or extremely dry conditions. And even the likes of, of Fiji, for example, and what can happen is you can have a drought develop and then the drought is then alleviated by cyclones. So it's kind of compounding extremes, you know, um, that, that can be really difficult to deal with. You need the water, but you don't need all the water at, at once, which is what a cyclone can bring. There's going to be kind of risks on both sides of the spectrum this year around water availability because of El Nino, but then also likely cyclone numbers and cyclone strength. Meanwhile, the first cyclone of the season, Lola, has come a week early. At the time this program was recorded, Lola was a Category 3 system heading towards Vanuatu's Toba and Penama provinces. RNZ Pacific is broadcasting the latest weather warnings on the cyclone from the Vanuatu Met Service. These can also be accessed on their website at www.vmgd.gov.bu and on the Vanuatu Met Service Facebook page. New Zealand Minor Party Act are adamant if they get into government, they will shut down the Ministry for Pacific Peoples. Act's Kieran Chaw is wanting to have a conversation about making sure that every New Zealander has the same equal rights and duties. Lydia Law started off by asking her how many Pacifica MPs Act has. There's three Māori MPs currently. with the ACT Party. Um, We had some on the list, but unfortunately um, they didn't make it through. Um, And we're hoping to get get more that will come and put their hands up in the future. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what your hopes are for this term in government. Yeah, so I've spent three years in opposition, um, myself personally, advocating for young people um, in our communities that don't necessarily come from um, the best start in life. Uh, And I'm grateful to have had that opportunity, learning opposition, learning my role. And I'm really looking forward to being part of a government where no matter what position I'm in, um, I'll be able to actually advocate for some real change going forward in the next three years when it comes to those young people who may need a little bit of extra support or, or a little bit of extra care in their life. One of the big issues that the Greens had when I interviewed Tiano was that the Act and National have been race-baiting. Do you accept what their views are? Well, no. I believe that 
if 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 you call wanting to have a conversation about making sure that every New Zealander has the same equal rights and duties, and every New Zealander understands um, what those are in regards to the treaty, um, if you want to call that race baiting, um, well, um, that's your issue. Uh, what we're actually doing is making sure that that conversation can happen in, in a proper democratic way, where we don't have an angry New Zealand that's angry and divided around the country. Uh, we're here to represent. People have asked us to have this conversation, and I'm really proud that I've got a team that's been brave enough to take that conversation on. How important is diversity to you in Parliament? We can put up everybody that we feel has put their hand up and would make a great candidate to be within our parties. But at the end of the day, it's the voters who decide who come into Parliament. Uh, We can put people in seats, we can put people in the list. Um, But at the end of the day, the votes decide who comes into Parliament at at the very end. Um, I would love... I love it when people put their hand up and actually have lived experience in areas where they know they can make real change. And that's the diversity um, that I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who are passionate, who have lived it, who know it, and who want to fix it and have that within themselves. And I think that that's a fantastic thing to bring to Parliament. Does ACT still support scrapping the Ministry for Pacific Peoples and why? Look, there's a whole lot of ministries that we've talked about um, wanting to dissolve um, and bring back into other ministries like the Ministry of Housing and things like that because we believe when you add a double layer of bureaucracy, money just gets wasted on overheads and, and upper management. And actually, we'd like that money to be closer to the ground where people can actually make a real difference with that money. Uh, we have to be very careful with how we're spending and, and we need better opportunities within housing, healthcare and education. And we believe that if we just tighten our belts and we make sure that every dollar spent has a good result, um, then that's what we'll be proud of standing by. In rugby league, Tosamo and Kiwi fans turned up in droves to back their teams for the inaugural Pacific Championships tournament at Auckland's Eden Park Stadium on Saturday. The highly anticipated matchup was a one-sided affair, with the host defeating Tosamo by 50 points to zero. But the result didn't dampen the fanfare of fanatical Tosamo fans, who cheered on their team from beginning to end. Fina Funua attended the match and has the story. Thousands of waving Samoan flags could be seen in the stands of Eden Park on Saturday nights, creating a mesmerizing sight. Eden Park had become a pilgrimage site for Samoan fans who arrived to support their beloved Toa Samoa, a team which captured the hearts of a nation when they made it to the grand finals of last year's Rugby League World Cup. I was fuzzy feeling. Uh, we just flew off from Wellington. Uh, we didn't get much games in Wellington, so 
of, of the back of last year when uh, the tour did well, we thought we'd just come support the boys. The atmosphere was unreal. That, it was magical, to say the least, from Samoan fans. The hosts' kiwis were made to feel like visitors when they entered a stadium dominated by the cheers and blue jerseys of Toa Samoa fans. Every time Toa Samoa had possession of the ball, fans screamed as if though their team had scored a try. But the kiwis kept their composure, taking advantage of errors and eventually running rampant. Browner to dummy half. Hughes, so good at creating space there. Interesting kick, Papali'i! There's another try for the Kiwis. Tor Samoa captain Junior Paolo and coach Ben Gardiner made no excuses for their performance, but said the future looked bright as most of the team consisted of young players. A lot of these guys are still 21, 22, so Samoa's only going to be better in the years to come. Uh, we knew coming to Auckland that um, we were going to have a lot of support and um, we, we were able to go and return that support and that's part of the Samoan culture is service. Um, so the boys understand that and they want to go about you know, returning service to their community. The passion and patriotism expressed by Paulo and his teammates symbolised the atmosphere and vibe of Samoan fans. An emotional sense of gratitude outweighed that of disappointments. To me, win or lose, though, um, it's just it's nice to come out and support my team no matter what. It was a very good game and somewhat very cool. Regardless of the scoreboard, um, our people are always here to, to love and support our, our boys. The Kiwis will take on Rugby League World Champions Australia next weekend. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fast Week 4.